This is a recording of the Braille Institute's Pediatric Vision Conference held at Rancho Mirage on November 8, 2008. So, good morning, and again, thank you for asking me to be here to speak to you today. And I know that many of you are here because you want to learn what you could do to help your child who has vision problems to do a bit better in his or her life. And if you were to have asked me to do this lecture 10 years ago, I think that my lecture probably would have been very, very different than what I'm going to be talking about today. 10 years ago, I would have probably talked about all of the different types of eye diseases, the diseases that are most common in children, such as prematurity, optic nerve damage, glaucoma, cataracts, neurological vision impairment, I would also probably be spending a lot of time talking about the use of low vision glasses and specialized visual aids and vision stimulation, vision therapy and exercises and such to help you. But today, and as I've gotten older, I think that my lecture is going to be very, very different because what I want you to take home from today's lecture is not to focus on your child's eyes and not to focus on your child's vision but you should focus on your child as an entire being. There have been just so many times that we have seen families who would come to our center, the Center for the Partially Sighted, and these families would sometimes become so focused on what their child is able to see, or whether or not their child's eyes are crossed, or whether or not their child's eyes are shaking, and at the risk of being so concerned with everything about the child's vision, they have many times not been able to appreciate just the way that their child is developing in general. Each and every one of you today who has a child, you're just definitely so blessed to be able to have a child. When we think about it, the miracle of, to be, of being able to have a child, it truly is just the greatest gift that anyone could have. I mean, if we look at all of the medical technology and the science there is no way that we could actually develop a human being. All of the computer technology, all the biotechnology, we cannot actually duplicate a human being. And each of you have your own child, and that child is part of you. There'll never be another person or another thing that is so close to you as your child. So the most important thing to do is to actually love your child, raise your child, and help your child develop. Pick up your kids, hug them, kiss them, take them for walks, take them to the park, take them to the zoo, take them to Disneyland, go out to eat, take them to the museums, take them on vacations. And with all of these experiences, your child will get more and more visual experiences that helps your child's vision to develop. But even more importantly, your child is going to learn and develop as a human being. Through these types of experiences, your child is going to grow and develop social skills, going to develop language skills, going to develop mobility skills, and your child's also going to develop different levels of vision. This past week, I was interviewed because the Center for the Parsi Society's Children's Program were now celebrating our 20th year. And I just can't believe how quickly the time has gone by. And as I look back at it, you know, my wife and I, we even have our daughter who just left the house to go to college. It's amazing how quickly time goes by. And it's very, very important that you don't just focus on your child's vision, but you focus on your child's overall development. The person who was interviewing me had asked me, what are some of the cases that you can recall from some of these kids that you saw for many, many years? And what are these kids doing now? And I thought back, and it made me reflect. It was just a month ago I received a call from a young girl. Her name is Jessica. And Jessica, she just told me that, yes, she had graduated from high school, she finished college, and now she moved to Colorado. And she said, you know, Dr. Bill, I just want to let you know that I'm doing fine. I have two babies. I'm married. I'm happy. And I never thought that when I was growing up as a little kid, and I wore those thick glasses that you gave me, and I was having all those problems at school, I never thought that I'd be married. But here I am. I'm married. And this is a dream come true to me. I also then remembered about a young man, and his name is Christopher. And when he was little, we called him Big Cause, because he was a big kid. You know, he was one of those kids that he would just walk, and you feel the ground shake, 
all the other kids would make fun of him because he had poor vision. The other kids would make fun of him because he was big and kind of clumsy. But as he got older, he actually made the football team. And he just gave me a call and he said, Dr. Bill, things are going great. You'll never believe it, but I passed the C-Best. And now I'm actually six foot eight, and I'm teaching preschoolers. I must be the tallest preschool teacher in the world at six foot eight, three hundred pounds. And this young man, he also volunteers at the Hollywood Bowl, where he drives the trams so that people can actually take the tram going from the bottom of the hill up to the top of the hill at the Hollywood Bowl. It also reminded me of another young man that I just got an email from, and his name is Michael. And Michael, he had very, very poor vision. His vision was so severe, he couldn't open his eyes in a room that had light. His vision was very, very poor. And he just sent me an email, and he told me, Dr. Bill, thanks for everything. I just got into Stanford Law. So when we think about all of these cases, and I was talking to the person who was interviewing me, I said, do you realize the one common thing here that we're talking about these kids now? We're not talking at all about whether their vision is 2200 or 2300 or 2040 or 2060 or 21,000. We're talking about how they are doing as human beings now. How are they doing in their lives today? And when these kids were little kids, three, four, five, six-year-old kids that I saw in 1988, their parents were just like you. They had concerns. What's going to happen to my child? What can I do to help my child's vision? Was it something that I did wrong when I was pregnant that caused my child to have this kind of a vision problem? They were so concerned that their life might just actually go to pots just because of the fact that their child has a vision impairment. But each one of these kids are doing extremely well. And to make things a little bit more interesting, guess which one of those kids has the worst vision? It's a Stanford Law student has the worst vision of all of them. So one of my students who was listening to the interview, this doctor had asked me, he says, well, Dr. Bill, what's the secret? What's the secret that made these kids so successful? Was it that you did some special testing and you diagnosed their eye condition? Was it that w these were the kids that you gave these special glasses to or a magnifier? Or was it that these were the kids that you taught them how to use computer technology? And I answered, none of them. The answer to the key to success of each and every one of these kids is that they had parents who cared. It was the parents who went and did the extra work to try to find out what could be done to help their child to succeed in life. In many of these kids, their vision did improve because of the work that we did. But what I learned after losing my own vision, the vision that you have really has nothing to do with the success that you have in your life. Sure, I wish that I could get my vision back so it could be like it was four years ago, where I was driving, I was working, I was examining patients. I definitely would like that. But what I also realize is that I do not need vision to do all the things that I enjoy doing in life. I'm able to work. I'm able to spend time with friends and family. I'm able to vacation. And Lord knows it, I still can eat, you know? So what you want to then think about is being a parent. You don't have to be the Ozzy and Harriet happy family. But if you have at least one parent or one grandmother, one grandfather, one aunt, one uncle, one person who's going to look out for this child, this child has a tremendous success, chance of success. So what do we have to do in order to become the best parent for the child who is visually impaired? Well, for you, I don't really need to tell you because all of you are here. The way to help your child is to gain information. You want to empower yourself. You have to stop feeling sorry for yourself. You have to stop wishing that life was different. Every one of us go through our ups and downs in life. Every one of you has a friend who's gone through different types of problems. Every one of you has actually experienced a time in your life that you've been disappointed. None of you expected, as your wives were pregnant and you were expecting your child, none of you expected that you were going to have a child who had a vision impairment, just like myself. Never in the, in the world would I have ever thought that I was going to be totally blind. 
But things do happen, and these are things that we don't have control over. But the things that we do have control over is our attitude and what we do about it. By getting off of your rear end and really working to try to find all the information to help your child, you're going to definitely be able to help your child succeed in life. The problems that I have seen many parents do is that many parents have expected the government to take care of their child. They have expected somebody from the regional center to send somebody to the home and this person is serious, suddenly going to go ahead and to fix that child's vision. Or there have been many others who have thought that I'm going to send my child to school and the teacher is going to help my child. Well, in reality, there are very, very few people in the world who are trained in helping children who are visually impaired to be able to develop maximally. When you think about having a person coming to your home and working with your child one hour a week or even two hours a week, if you look at the percentage of the hours of a week that the child is getting that kind of care from a specialist, we're talking about a very, very small fraction. On the other hand, you who is with the child completely all the time, you have that opportunity to help your child to develop. So the first step in helping your child is to gain the information. Gain as much information as you can by attending meetings such as this. And gain as much information as you can by going to different types of schools, support groups, going to different websites, and learn as much as you can to see what can be done to help your child. So the first thing that you want to do is to really get a team of professionals to help you. If your child has a vision problem, your child first of all needs an ophthalmologist. Many people are concerned and confused about whether or not they have the right doctor. Well, you do need an ophthalmologist in most situations because an ophthalmologist is the medical doctor who can prescribe medications and surgery to potentially help your child's vision. Now, not all ophthalmologists have the same level of training. Some ophthalmologists specialize in the retina. So if your child was born premature and suffered from a retinal hemorrhage due to retinopathy of prematurity, you want to be seen by a retina specialist. If your child has an optic nerve problem, such as optic nerve hypoplasia, you do want to be seen by a pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist, someone who has a lot of experience in working with optic nerve conditions. If your child was born with glaucoma, you want an ophthalmologist that specializes in glaucoma. What an ophthalmologist is, these are medical doctors who go to four years of medical school. And during the four years of medical school, these doctors really don't get a significant amount of training on the eyes. During medical school, they learn how to keep people alive. They learn about the hearts, the lungs, how everything works together. But their training in actually treating and diagnosis eye, condition, eye conditions is quite poor at that particular level. What they do is they go on to programs of ophthalmology residency programs. And these residency programs are typically three years. And during that time, the doctors will learn to perform surgery, diagnose different types of eye conditions, and prescribe different types of medications. Now, some of these ophthalmologists who complete their residency in ophthalmology, they then go on to do a fellowship. And during the fellowship, this is when they can specialize in pediatrics. They may specialize in pediatric retina, pediatric optic nerve conditions, and many other subspecialties. So you do want an ophthalmologist who specializes in that particular type of condition. Now, what if you have a HMO? and your primary care physician just says, well, I want you just to go to this particular doctor. Well, you need to fight that, and you want to ask them for a referral to a ophthalmologist that specializes in that condition. Another doctor that you need in your team is that you do need a developmental low vision optometrist. Now, an optometrist is different than an ophthalmologist in that optometrists do not perform surgery. But similar to an ophthalmologist, the optometrist is required by law to diagnose eye conditions, to prescribe different types of glasses, contact lenses, low vision aids, vision stimulation, vision therapy. 
And the optometrist is also going to provide different types of recommendations regarding lighting. What type of lighting would be best for your child? How can you use contrast in your home to help your child to see better? What kinds of computer programs would be best for your child to be able to perform schoolwork at a later age? Now, optometrists, very similar to the ophthalmologist, we do go through four years of undergraduate education. And after we receive our bachelor's degree, we do not go to medical school, but we do go to optometry school. There are 17 optometry schools in the United States. And during that time in optometry school, we learn everything about how vision occurs, what part of the brain sees color, what part of the brain recognizes faces, what part of the brain is able to provide depth perception. We learn how to prescribe specialized glasses and such for children who are not able to speak. Many optometrists will then go on to perform a residency, and during the residency program, these doctors will specialize in fields such as pediatrics, or they may specialize in developmental vision. They may specialize in the field of low vision, and others will go on and specialize in a more subspecialty such as developmental low vision. Now, as a developmental low vision specialist, what we do is we can tell what should that child be doing at this particular age in his or her life? What we know is that when a newborn is born, the eyes are really focused at a distance of 8 to 16 inches, and they cannot see color. They can only see black and white. They're most stimulated in looking at round, circular objects that are about the size of a nickel, and this really correlates very well to about the distance that a child would need to be able to see his or her mother. We know that children who have reduced vision are delayed in making eye contact. We know that the child who has reduced vision may often have difficulties with different types of maternal bonding. There was a time when I saw a child who was flown in from a different country, and this was a real dignitary type of a family. And it was very interesting because the father brought in the child, and the mother just kind of sat there. She never looked at the child. She never looked at me. She didn't look at her husband. She just looked a bit withdrawn. The father said, well, we need you to take a look at our child's eyes. We think that he has a vision problem. We've been to many places, and they said that there's nothing that could be done, but we heard about your clinic. Well, we evaluated this young boy, and what we found was that this young boy had a very high degree of nearsightedness. What nearsightedness means is that the eyes could only focus at a distance of 10 to 12 inches or even closer in many cases. For this boy, his eyes could only focus at about 2 inches. The mother then said, there's nothing wrong with his eyes. He just hates me. I'm a bad mother. He just hates me. That's why he doesn't look at me. Well, what we did is we performed some special tests, and these were tests where we shine a beam of light inside the eye. Now, what this beam of light does is it focuses onto the back of the eye. And when we look at that beam of light, we could see how the light reflects. When that reflection of light is blurry, we know that the child sees blurry. So we simply insert lenses in front of the child's eyes until that beam of light will focus very clearly. And in this particular case with this boy, we found that this guy's eyes were such that he could not focus at a distance beyond two inches. So when we put the lenses in front of his eyes, immediately the reflex set in. His eyes looked directly at his mother's eyes, and it was something that was going to affect his overall development just by being able to see his mother's eyes. When a child is young, they do need to be able to see at these close distances because this is how the child bonds. This is how the child learns to be able to look at the lips, to make and copy different types of facial gestures. This is how a child's language development comes. When we see that children are about the age of six months, we know that at that time, the child is starting to develop color vision. They could see some of the primary colors. At six months, the eyes are then able to move without moving the head. The child could focus at a distance of about three to five feet. By the time that the child is 12 months old, we now know that the child now has depth perception. The child's distance vision is such that the child could see things quite clearly at a distance of 10 feet. We now know that the child has color vision. We now know that the child's eye-hand coordination has that particular type of development. 
So when we look at a child, we don't look at how old is a child and what is a child doing. But on the other hand, we're trying to determine what level of vision is this child. A child who is two years or four years old may actually be at a visual developmental level of a three-month-old. And from this information, we could then prescribe glasses and low vision aids to help that child to see more clearly at his or her hand's reach, to develop reaching, to be able to help that child to become more aware of his surroundings. And many times we see children who have a loss of peripheral vision on one side because of a brain hemorrhage. And with these kids, they're completely oblivious to the fact that there could be something present on the left side of the world. So for this child, we're going to recommend activities that are going to help this child to learn to become aware of left visual space. We see that many children have difficulties with being able to recognize faces because of the fact that the right side of the brain has been infected by different types of neurological problems. So in such cases, we're going to recommend different types of activities that are going to stimulate the right side of the brain. We're going to tell the parents to position toys and other objects on the child's left side, and that will then stimulate the right side of the brain. We're going to recommend that the parents are going to use special type of lighting to help the child to be able to see the contrast more effectively, to be able to see his or her lips a little bit easier when mom and dad are speaking to them. We're going to recommend that we're going to use different types of facial expressions to help the child to learn to recognize facial expressions. So during the low vision developmental evaluation, we're not just looking as to whether or not the tissues of the eyes are healthy. We're looking at what can the child see? What are your child's strengths and what are your child's weaknesses? And from that point, the low vision optometrist will then make recommendations and referrals to the next member of the team. The next member of your team is going to be a team of vision specialists. And many times they're going to be infant vision specialists, such as those that are available through the Regional Center, the Braille Institute, the Junior Blind of America here in Los Angeles. And we're also going to find that there's many occupational therapists who are receiving training by many optometrists in the area of vision development. When we talk about this concept of vision development, we have to really think, is this something that is just quackery, or is there some science behind it? Well, in the 1970s, there were actually two scientists who actually won Nobel Prizes for their work on learning about vision development. Doctors Hubel and Weasel, in the 1970s, they did these studies where they took kittens. And these were perfectly healthy kittens, and when these kittens were born, they separated them into different groups. One group of the kittens, they sutured their eyelids shut. By sewing their eyelids shut, these kittens were deprived of any kind of visual information whatsoever. The second group of kittens, they actually raised them in a room that only had vertical stripes. Everything had black and white stripes that were going up and down throughout the walls. The third group of kittens were reared in just a regular environment. What they did is they then studied these kittens and eight weeks later they actually measured their vision and what they found was that the kittens that were reared in a normal environment, their vision was normal. They had a normal a level of vision. When they then looked at the kittens that had their eyes sutured shut, they opened their eyes and they found that these kittens were blind. They could not walk through a maze. These kittens were not able to see anything. And then when they looked at the kittens that were reared in a room that only had vertical stripes, they found that the only thing that these kittens were able to see were vertical stripes. So from this study, they learned that the environment that the child or the kitten grows up in is going to affect the development of their vision. So the next thing that they did is they took these kittens and they studied their brains, and they wanted to find out where does vision occur. Is vision occurring in the eyes somehow, or is vision occurring in the brain? And they found that there was a specific part of the brain called the occipital lobe of the brain. And this is the area, there's a bump. If you feel the bump right in the very back of your head, that whole back portion of your brain is called the occipital lobe of the brain. What they found was that in the kittens, where their eyes were sutured shut, that part of the brain was much smaller. The cells were not fully developed. When they looked at the kittens that were reared in a normal environment, 
the cells in the occipital lobe of the brain were much larger. They were adult-like. They were very, very mature. And when they then looked at the kittens that were reared in a room that only had vertical stripe, they actually found that there were columns of cells in the brain that were more developed. So what they realized from this was that the eyes are merely receivers of light that sends information to the brain. Without stimulating the brain, vision will not develop. And we now know that there are many children who have what is called lazy eye, also known as amblyopia. And children with amblyopia, their eyes are perfectly healthy, but for some reason they don't see clearly. Many times it's because one eye is crossed or turned. And when the eye that is crossed or turned, the brain does not get enough stimulation from that eye. And as a result, if we cover the good eye and have them try to look through the crossed or crooked eye, their vision is very, very poor. They can't even read the big E on a letter chart. We also see that there's a lot of children who have a high prescription. They might be very nearsighted. They may be very farsighted in just one eye. And if that child has not been given glasses, then the brain cells do not get stimulated. And these kids also have very, very blurred vision. And we also know that there are many children where both eyes are crossed or both eyes have farsightedness or nearsighted and they have not been prescribed glasses. And for these children, both eyes will have blurred vision and the brain cells are not fully developed. So what these doctors then did is they said, well, we know that these kittens that were deprived of any kind of stimulation, their brains were not fully developed. So what if we take those kittens that were totally blind and we put them in an environment where there's a lot of visual stimuli, what will happen to their vision? They took these kittens, they put them in rooms that have a lot of visual stimulation, and what they found was that these kittens later developed normal vision. They actually developed normal vision. And they then wanted to find out how long do we have where we could still take a blind kitten and still develop their vision. And they found that there was a critical time period. And we now know that in human beings, there's also a critical time period. So for children, we know that the first seven years of life is that critical time period. But the sooner that we implement the visual stimulation, the greater the results. And that's why we said that if your child has optic nerve hypoplasia or cortical vision impairment or retinopathy of prematurity or FEVR, any of these other types of conditions, we want to go ahead and implement the visual stimulation as soon as possible in order to stimulate the brain maximally. Now when we think about the most common types of vision conditions that we see with the kids over the past 20 years, we're seeing that there's major changes in the trends of vision loss. When I was in school, the most common thing that would cause vision impairment was retinopathy of prematurity. This is where a child would be born prematurely and the eyes would not develop normally. The blood vessels did not develop normally and as a result, the blood vessels would leak, we would get a lot of scar tissue, and the scar tissue would just pull the retina off of the back of the eye. Now the retina is a very important structure in the eye because the retina is where the vision occurs inside the eye. The cells of the retina convert the light energy into electrical signals and sends it to the brain. So when the retina is pulled off, we can't have any type of vision. And this is why if your child was born premature, your child must be seen by the retina specialist immediately. If there is a retinal detachment, many children can have surgery to reattach the retina. Now one of the things that often happens during retinal reattachment surgery is that during that surgical procedure, many times the internal lens of the eye has to be removed in order to reattach the retina. We see many kids who have Norrie's disease, other kids who have FEVR, other kids who have retinopathy of prematurity where they suffered from a retinal detachment and the lens had to be removed during that operation. And unlike older folks who have the lens removed during cataract surgery, for young infants, 
A implant artificial lens usually is not inserted because the child's eyes are not fully developed. If you insert that implant, it might develop more and more scar tissue and cause other problems. So the most important thing for these children who have had this type of surgery is that they do need glasses, and these glasses must be worn at all times. Now one of the differences between many general ophthalmologists and pediatric ophthalmologists or a developmental low vision optometrist is that the developmental low vision optometrist and many pediatric ophthalmologists, we will often prescribe the glasses based on the child's visual developmental age. In other words, if this child is at a six-month developmental level and is beginning to reach for toys and reach for food, reach for a bottle, we don't want those glasses to be focused at 50 yards away. We want those glasses to be focused at the distance of your child's eyes and hands so your child could develop eye-hand coordination. As your child then begins to stand and begins to walk, we will then modify the glasses prescription to help your child to focus at 5 to 10 feet. As your child is then at an age where your child is ready to be learning numbers and letters at 4 to 5 years of age, where you could start to show symbols, we're then going to recommend different types of visual aids, such as magnifiers, dome magnifiers, video magnification machines, so that your child could learn and discriminate colors and shapes as a precursor to reading. When a child is six years old, we then want to go ahead and introduce words and numbers and letters. Many people will ask us, at what age is a child's visual system, not their eyes, but their visual system, ready for reading? And we would say generally, the different regions of the brain are ready for reading at the age of about seven. Before that time, many kids are going to have confusion, where they're going to reverse B's and D's and P's and Q's. Other kids might have sequencing problems because of seizure disorders. Many seizures are caused by problems where there's spikes in electrical energy to the left side of the brain. But this left side of the brain is the language side of the brain. These kids may have delays in their language. They may have delays in learning numbers and letters. They may have delays in recognizing words. And many of these kids may be like Jessica that I talked about and have dyslexia. But dyslexia doesn't mean the end of the world. Kids can overcome dyslexia and they can become very, very successful. We see that other children are going to have problems where their eyes are fine, but it's basically that the visual centers of the brain are not able to process that information. And when this is the case, we call this neurological vision impairment. And we use the term neurological because neurological lets all of us know that the problem is someplace within the brain. Vision is going to talk about the fact that there's something wrong with the visual system. And impairment is because of the fact that these kids do not have that normal level of vision. Now, within this category of neurological vision impairment, we break it down into three subcategories. The most common form of neurological vision impairment is called cortical vision impairment. And these kids, they have very interesting visual behaviors. They tend to see things better if the objects are moving, rotating, and shaking. They like lights that would be blinking and flashing. And these are the kids who often do not make eye contact because they have very poor central vision. They will not look at your face when you're speaking to them, but they may use their peripheral vision. Their vision is often described as looking through Swiss cheese, where they're going to have many different types of holes where they may see things better off to the side, but right in the center there's a little blind spot. These kids often do not respond very well if there is an object that is stationary, but if the object is moving and spinning, if you put them in front of a ceiling fan, they may love to look at the ceiling fan. You have lights that are blinking, they like that. You turn on a video and they like to look at the scrolling credits at the end of the film. These behaviors are also very, very similar to the visual behaviors of many children with autism. And this is because the visual centers of the brain are processing information differently. A second form of neurological vision impairment is called delayed visual maturation. And this is a situation in which the visual centers of the back of the brain are slow in making these types of connections. 
But what we find is that with these kids, after receiving vision stimulation, by the age of three years, 36 months, these kids, their vision is very, very high. Their vision is very functional. These kids almost have normal vision by the age of three to three and a half years of age. The last category of neurological vision impairment is called cortical blindness. And this accounts for about 7% from our studies of the kids with neurological vision impairment have cortical blindness. And with cortical blindness, the damage to the occipital lobe of the brain is such that these kids just do not have any vision. For these kids, it's important that we identify them as early as possible so that we can then recommend the appropriate types of treatments. These are the kids that we want them to become familiar with using computer technology and software. They could use different types of scanners. You know, one of the things that I was very concerned about was that when I lost all of my vision, I thought, you know, I may have to completely retire. But what I've learned is that there are computer programs. Right now I'm using a basic computer here, and my computer is talking to me. And through this particular type of communication, it's telling me that this particular program here is recording, and we've recorded this for X number of minutes. I could go onto the Internet and do research. I could do email. I could go ahead and do spreadsheets on Excel. We also have other types of technology where there are scanners where you can actually place a very small uh, camera that's about the size of a deck of cards, and you could hold this camera with your hand press a button and it takes a picture. Now the interesting thing about this camera is that it's actually a cell phone. So you could carry this cell phone with you and you could scan anything and it will read it out loud for you. So the amount of technology that's available is tremendous. And similar to this young man Michael who's at Stanford Law School, he is not trying to use vision even though he can read with his vision. He's able to read at about 350 words a minute in Braille. He's able to access information using this type of equipment much faster than he can when he uses his vision. So it's very important to get a diagnosis and to understand what are the child's visual strengths and weaknesses as soon as possible to develop those particular types of skills. When the child gets to be a bit older, when we're talking about the transition years towards kindergarten and first grade, I think it's very important that we actually give a consultation with school psychologists. We want to talk and get some understanding. What's the best way that we can let the other kids in the classroom know about vision? There have been so many times that kids have been embarrassed or the parents have been very embarrassed. They're saying, well, you know, my child can't wear these glasses because they're kind of thick and the other kids might call them four eyes. But what we've done is we've gone into the classroom as doctors. We've gone in there and we've done lectures. We've taught nurses how to do lectures. And pretty soon, the child with glasses is the coolest kid in the classroom. When I had my private practice and I would give one of these talks, suddenly i get all of these referrals because every kid would go in and tell their mom, I can't see very well. I need glasses. I need to go to Dr. Bill's. And so when kids are exposed at a very early age, I think it's much, much easier as compared to when the child is in high school. When a child goes to school in kindergarten and first grade and they're using a magnifier or they're using glasses that might be a brown sunglass or they're using a special type of video magnifier, these kids just think it's normal. They just think that it's part of what his friend has in the classroom. And as they go through years and years with their peers, it just becomes much, much easier. So I think that another member of the team is going to be the school psychologist and the school nurse so that you can get involved and have them be part of it. I also encourage you to contact the Braille Institute and some of the specialists with Braille Institute because they could serve as a consultant to help you with some of these things. They have literature and materials and resources. They have so many different things that are going to give you that information to empower you to be the best parent that you can to help your child. So in summary, what I want to just share with you is that it's so important that you as a parent just enjoy and love your child to the fullest that you can. And by being the best parent that you can, your child can develop to be a very, very productive citizen in life. We think about the way that our society has accepted 
people with blindness and low vision to such a tremendous degree. I mean, if we think about it, probably one of the world's most successful musical artists ever, Stevie Wonder, he's blind. When you go to the CSUN conference, and if you go there on a Saturday, you see all these people there following and looking at all the technology, and you know exactly when Stevie Wonder's there. He's given autographs to everybody, but he's actually donated millions of dollars in terms of the research to help there to find a cure for these different types of vision problems. We now know that for different types of retinal conditions, such as Lieber's, we have found the gene so that we can now have genetic engineering where the gene could then be implanted with a normal gene into the eyes of humans and the cells of the retina can develop. We now know that there are also artificial implants. There have been, I believe it's 16 adults have been implanted with the electrical implant where there is a microchip inside the eye and when you wear glasses that have a very very tiny camera people who have been totally blind are now able to see things to be able to walk to get around they could differentiate between a bowl and a cup they could identify large letters so this type of technology is also developing we now know with other types of retinal conditions there are new medications that are being injected into the eyes to help the retinas of people with retinitis pigmentosa we now have medications to help people with diabetic retinopathies so we don't get that type of leakage we also now that know that now in in the united states we have famous governors the governor of new york he's legally blind we know that one of the richest men in the world steve Wynn, he is legally blind and he's building another casino i think it's just for his wife birth his wife's birthday he built the encore hotel so the point to all of this is that your child's success your child's vision is not going to determine his or her destiny but you as a parent can make certain that your child grows up to be the best that he or she can be and with a team of professionals you can actually get the most help possible to maximize the development of your child's vision which is another major major asset but if your child's vision does not develop you have to also be aware that these particular types of doctors can guide you and direct you in terms of using the appropriate low vision technology that technology is available but the main thing to do is again to spend the time to be the best parent you can and to make certain that your child just becomes the best person that he or she can so thank you very very much and at this time we'll open it up to any questions yeah the question is what about children who have suffered from a retinal detachment perhaps through retinopathy of prematurity and also have suffered from a brain hemorrhage or there may be some problems where the brain did, get, did not get sufficient oxygen and this is something that's very important that you do have a developmental low vision evaluation because with this particular evaluation the low vision optometrist could determine how much of these particular developmental delays or lags are related because of the sight or how much of it is related to neurological conditions we see that there are many many children who have perfect 2020 eyesight but they have learning problems they have dyslexia so they're a slow reader or they may have different types of visual spatial problems so they have difficulties with mathematics we have other kids who have language problems where they have difficulties with remembering what they hear so as a developmental low vision specialist you can actually determine what is that child's level of vision and then compare that to what level of vision should a child have and have different levels of visual processing with respect to that particular type of brain problem and from that we can make recommendations to the IEP team to make that kind of suggestion that can help your child to be placed in the most appropriate school so what we do find is that in children who do have retinopathy of prematurity many times they will have both a retinal problem as well as a brain problem many of the school psychologists they do have specialized tests where they can evaluate the child's cognitive abilities but I also warn you is that with many of these types of tests many times the child does not feel like cooperating many times to this child it's not that important for them to do very well 
Many times we'll see that on these tests, the child may get a score that is so poor that you may think that this child has no potential, but the child really had very, very poor attention. So there's many other things to consider, and it is very important that you do, again, acquire the knowledge, get the team of professionals, and you could then ask for those types of assessments. Yeah, the question is, what about all of this research with stem cells? And stem cells is sort of a a large term that is often misused and there's different types of stem cells. The main thing to be remembering about stem cells is that this research is in the very 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 early stages. Okay. Now some of the things is that many people will collect stem cells from the umbilical cord and many times these particular types of stem cells could be used for different types of treatments it could be very effective in helping some children who have different types of blood disorders such as sickle cell anemia for example with respect to the eyes these particular types of stem cell treatments are so early that I would not recommend that type of treatment similarly in China there's other situations where people are going to China and having stem cells and these stem cells are being injected into the brain with the hopes that it's going to help improve the function of the brain I think at this point in time, it is very, very early to do this type of research. And I think that it's very important that before you allow the research to be done on your child, that you actually speak to a lot of different types of professionals. And again, find out what your child is able to see. At this point in time, I do not believe that there is any stem cell research being done right now that could restore a retina. If there was... I, I would be there right now. I have a retinal disease and as a result I am totally blind. I do know that Dr. Bob Araman, he is doing research with stem cells where they are creating sheaths of tissues of stem cells and these stem cells are hopefully being generated into a retinal tissue. But at this point in time there's no conclusive evidence that that can actually form a retina. On the other hand, as far as in, in inserting stem cells to try to improve the function of the brain, when a child is very, very young, there is something called plasticity. And this particular type of neuroplasticity is such that different regions of the brain may take over a function that is separate region that would normally do it. So, for example, if there's a part of the brain that is normally involved in speaking, um, many times we'll find that a different region of the brain will take over that function. So I do not feel that it's really urgent to try to go and do some experimental studies on your child by inserting a stem cell because there still is that possibility that plasticity will occur and another part of the brain will take over. But again, my suggestion would be that your child would be evaluated so we could find out how much vision does your child have? Will, you chi will your child benefit from specialized types of low vision age right now. And then, once the vision is maximized, let's go ahead and have a consultation to evaluate the cognitive component. Let's see the function of the brain. Okay? Next question. Okay, the questions are, if a child was born without any eyes or with something called microophthalmia where the eyes are very tiny at what age should a child begin to have a prosthesis now there are doctors who specialize in forming prosthesis and we really would recommend that the child is evaluated as soon as possible just so that the doctor will have an idea of what what the shape of the eye socket is now what we find is that it is normally the growth or the development of the eye that actually shapes the formation of the skull and the bones that hold the eyeball. So when children don't have an eye, we often find that the whole eye socket starts to sink in. It starts to go inward towards the brain and it starts to have kind of an awkward cosmetic appearance. So in such cases, they will put in an artificial, what we call a sizer. And this particular type of sizer is something that can actually make certain that the bones around the eye continue to develop at that proper rate. The insertion of a prosthetic eye really can damage, do no damage to the brain. I have never read any article or any study that said that by putting in a prosthesis, 
would actually damage the brain itself. So children will actually be inserted with a prosthesis at very, very young ages, sometimes even before the age of one. Now the other question was, at what age is the eye more adult-like? And what we find is that the size of the eye and the structures of the eye, typically by the age of two years of age, the retina and the eye and the tissues of the eye are pretty close to being adult-like. The eye will continue to grow slightly for another 20 years or so. And so we find that that's why many times a child or prescription will change during the first 20 years quite a bit. But overall, we find that the eye is going to be quite mature in, in its structural size by the first two years. But the process of vision, because the process of vision does not occur in the eye and it occurs in the brain, vision will continue to develop for many, many years. Now you might say, well, that's kind of interesting. And what do you mean by that? We see a lot of kids who have optic nerve hypoplasia. This is the fastest growing cause of eye-related vision problems. And with optic nerve hypoplasia, we see many kids when they're very young and their vision might be 20 over 400. And as these kids get older, we find that their vision might improve. Suddenly they're 2200, next they're 2100, next they're 2080. And when we look at the optic nerve, we see that the optic nerve has not gotten any bigger. It has not developed. The structure of the eye has not changed but the brain has gotten smarter. The brain knows how to interpret that image that it sees and it then says, oh, those letters are PHTC. But when that child was four or five, that child was not able to identify those letters because the brain could not discriminate the blur as well. So in other words, as people get older, their visual perception develops further. And for example, Another component of vision is actually blind vision. I am totally blind. You could take me outside and I cannot tell where the sun is by looking at it. I could feel the heat of it, but I can't tell where it is. But through visual perception, I see things in my mind's eye. I feel something, and from that feeling of it, I could determine what particular type of shape it is. When I go to a restaurant and I smell something, I can identify what food it is. And in my mind, I get a picture of it. When I'm trying to walk certain places, and I recall that when I still was able to see light, just the mere ability to see light, oh, it is so helpful. It is tremendously helpful. Many times teachers or doctors will say, well, he's got microphthalmia. He's got optic nerve hypoplasia. He's got a retinal detachment. He can only see light. So, you know, we don't need to use that. Light perception is tremendously valuable. It helps you to know where you are in space. It helps you to be able to walk from one location to another. It's tremendously helpful. So if your child does have a microophthalmia, it's important to have a developmental low vision examination to see if that child does see light. If there is light perception, I would not recommend that there's going to be a prosthetic, prosthetic shell placed on the eye. Next question. Okay, so the question is, uh, she has a daughter by the name of Carmen. Carmen is two... Oh, Samantha. Samantha is two years old, and the question is, uh, what size letter can Samantha see? Well, the first thing here is that, again, we would recommend that after Samantha has been seen by the ophthalmologist to be seen by a developmental low vision specialist so that the specialist could then tell you what colors can she see, what size can she see, how far can she see, how big do things need to be, where should you place things, should you put things on her left side or on her right side. If you're going to be feeding her, they're going to tell you, well, it'll be better if you use a dark placemat use a white bowl, and then go ahead and pour her dark foods, like her chocolate pudding in a dark bowl, so there's that type of contrast. Or the doctor will tell you, it'll be very helpful that you're going to be using special type of lighting. Your child will benefit from using a full-spectrum light so that your child can see things more easily. Or that your child will benefit from using a warm, white, fluorescent bulb instead to maximize vision. So that is the job of the low-vision specialist. Now, on the other hand, 
most two-year-olds, most two-year-olds, they often are not at the level where they are ready to be able to look at numbers and letters and such. The visual centers of the brain are not quite mature. But there are some kids who are especially gifted, and they may be ready to learn their numbers and letters and symbols and shapes at two years of age. But on a general rule, developmentally, I would recommend that you're going to start out using concrete, tactile, tangible blocks and shapes. The child's development usually develops from close to far, so we want the child to be able to feel blocks. You want to use high contrast blocks so your child could feel the difference between a square and a circle and a triangle. You might then use form board puzzles so they could insert and feel how that fits and moves. You could paint those blocks to maximize the contrast. So these are things that you can do at the age of about two. And when the child gets to be closer towards four, I would then say, let's go ahead and start to show these symbols and shapes and colors so that your child can learn those by using vision. Okay? So the short answer to that is your child would really benefit from a visual type of screening. Yeah, that, that is fantastic. Sounds like everything that you're doing, that everything there is just perfect. And so again, I think the missing thing there is um, you, you, your child will benefit from a, a low vision consultation to be able to answer those questions because uh, when, when she turns three, we need to have a real comprehensive report that we could then send to the transition team. The most important thing is to gather that information. And I know that at the Braille Institute, Sue and a lot of her staff, they put together these really, really wonderful notebooks. And with these notebooks, you could take these notebooks to each doctor's office, whether it's going to be the, the pediatrician or the ophthalmologist or the low vision specialist or to your occupational therapist. And that way, everybody could see exactly what is happening. So this is categorized really very, very nicely. The second thing is that the Braille Institute, they do have other sheets. And one of the sheets that I recommend you take, and it's a question sheet. And through these questions, you will then it'll remind you what questions to ask because a lot of times you get into the doctor's office and they're talking so quickly or your child's crying or the doctors want you out of the office quickly and you don't know what questions to ask so this particular form is extremely extremely helpful another thing that the braille institute is also offering is that they are offering telephone consultations so if you want to go into more individual detail about your children uh, we will actually schedule an appointment where one of the consultants will come to your home. We will get on the telephone, and the three of us will have a consultation. We will actually make some recommendations as to what kinds of lighting, what kinds of games, what kinds of toys would be most helpful. And again, later this afternoon, I recommend that you, you, you attend the workshops so you learn about what types of activities and toys you could build to help stimulate your child's vision. Uh, another comment, um, just before I forget, too. Our clinic, the Center for the Partially Sighted, if you contact Sue Parker Strafasi at Braille Institute, we are offering 10 low vision examinations for children. If, you're, if your Medi-Cal is assigned and, and, and you're, you know, right now things are difficult in the economy, we are, we are offering 10 free, complete visual consultations through the Braille Institute at our center, so there'll be no charge for that. So you could contact Sue Parker if you want to uh, come and see the ocean and visit us. The question is, why, why is her daughter uh, keeping her eyes a little closed while she's wearing the glasses? You know, for children, what you have to understand is that with children, their life is perfectly fine the way that things are now. They're happy that you're carrying them. They're happy that you're cuddling them. They're happy that you feed them when they cry. They're happy that you change their diapers. They're happy that you do all of these things for them. So in many cases, change is not something that is always easy for them. So when it comes down to wearing glasses, one of the first things that you want to do is you want to go ahead and prepare the child to wear glasses. And we're going to recommend different types of massaging. You massage around the ears, the bridge of the nose, around the eyebrows and the face. And you do this during all of those activities that your child likes to do so much. Once a child is accustomed to that, you then want to put the glasses on during those same activities. 
And at that particular time, we hope that it develops a positive reinforcement. Now, in some cases, when you put glasses on, suddenly, like for yourself, have many of you ever got glasses and you felt a little bit overwhelmed? Things were either too sharp, too bright, there was too much visual information. This too much information can be something that often will cause them to want to filter out some of that information by maybe even squinting or closing their eyes a bit. Okay, But we do strongly recommend that you continue to do this because this is what's going to be the best for the development of your child's vision. Okay, the question is, uh, her child, the head circumference is not growing. And the question is, if the head circumference is not growing, is that going to damage the eyesight? Well, very often, one of the reasons why the head isn't growing is because the, the brain itself is not expanding. The brain, many times it might be that through infection or encephalitis, that the brain is not growing so that the skull isn't being pushed out further. So that, that could sometimes be the case. There's other possible causes that the brain may not be, be enlarging and the skull may not be getting larger. But many times, yes, if a child does have microcephaly, meaning a head that is a bit smaller, they might have some vision impairment, but they do not have to have vision impairment. So this is something that, again, needs to be evaluated by a professional. Okay, so thank you very much for your attention, and if you have any questions, I think we passed out cards. If, if uh, you just want to talk to me privately, we could go ahead and do that as well. Okay, thank you very much.